morning, we ask that you would grant us a wonderful time in your word. I confess in my own heart, I'm, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm already excited just to worship again. And yet I pray through the teaching of your word, through the unfolding of your word, you would develop in us a deeper passion for you, a deeper passion to love and serve the Lord our God with all of our hearts, souls, and minds, and that you would develop us into those who would lovingly serve others. We come before you knowing all too well who we are, that we are selfish and sinful, and yet we also understand that you are the one who came to save the lives of men and women and to transform them, and to make us into something we were not. So this morning, Lord, accomplish that work. Continue that work. Move forward in that work of taking us and making us what you want us to be. We ask that you would speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're confronted with James and John, the sons of thunder, they're called. And James and John made up two-thirds of that inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. We know and understand as as we read the Gospels that Jesus had a whole lot of disciples, but there were 70 sort of special ones that he commissioned and set out on little mission trips during his ministry. And then there was the smaller group of 12 that we're talking about right now. And then there was yet the more intimate group of three, made up of Peter, and then James and John, these two brothers. James, by all accounts, was the older of the brothers, and their father's name was Zebedee. Nice name, huh? And their mother's name was Salome. And we know from the Gospels that this family owned a fishing business. We're told in the book of Mark that Zebedee, the father, had servants in his boat. So he wasn't like Peter and Andrew and some of the other fishermen at that time who may have worked for themselves or just barely scraped by, but he had a business and he had hired people and he had a fleet of boats. And we could sort of discern from that that James and John were probably better off financially than your average fisherman in the Galilee. In fact, they probably never knew poverty until they followed Jesus. But it's clear again from the Gospels that they did experience poverty, that is, lack of material things when they followed the Lord, but no lack of spiritual things. Amen? We're told in Mark chapter 1, verse 20, that they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow Jesus. So they were obedient in the initial call. Jesus came by and said, James, John, you guys follow me. And James and John left the family business. They left their father. They left all the boats and all the servants, and they followed after the Lord. We're not told how Zebedee, the father, reacted. We have no idea. He could have been pleased. Uh, There's some hints from extra-biblical writings that he was a pretty orthodox Jew and that he was not pleased, but we cannot say for sure. But we do know from the New Testament about James and John's mother, Salome. Salome was herself a disciple of Jesus Christ. When James and John went, either at that time or sometime shortly after, Salome as well began to follow Jesus Christ. And she was one of the women that we read about in the Gospels who in following the Lord and being with the disciples helped provide for their needs. She was also one of the very few who were at the cross when Jesus gave up his last. And she was also at the tomb that morning, that Easter morning, when it was discovered to be empty. What a cool mom, huh? My mom was there at the crucifixion, and she was one of the first ones to see the empty tomb. Well, James and John had a lot of blessings in their life, the greatest of which, no doubt, was that they were part of that forementioned circle of three, the inner circle of disciples. Jesus chose them for closer intimacy, nearer relationship, and more complete confidence. He would pour into them in their lives immensely. He would have with them amazing experiences, but he would expect from them great things for the kingdom of God. Excuse me. We know that being part of that inner three, James and John, as well as Peter, got to witness things that no one else on the face of the earth got to witness. The first time that Jesus rose someone from the dead, it was Jairus' daughter. 
And we're told expressly in the book of Mark chapter 5 that when Jesus went into the room to raise her from the dead, that he forbid anyone to go in with him except for Peter, James, and John. Kind of a bummer for the other guys, huh? But for Peter, James, and John, pretty cool. They got to be in the room the first time that the Lord said, little girl, rise. And we're told there in the Gospels that she got up, that the Lord raised her from the dead. They witnessed that. They saw that. They also, this inner three, were privileged to go up on that mount there in the Galilee region when Jesus was transfigured. We've spoken a couple times about that event. When Jesus appeared there glorified in the fullness of his deity with Moses and Elijah also there with him. It was Peter, James, and John that got to witness that amazing event. They were also privileged in the Garden of Gethsemane. There, the night before Jesus was crucified, he took all 12 of his disciples from the upper room where they had the Passover meal to the Garden of Gethsemane. But then he told nine of the disciples, if my math is right, to stay here. And he told Peter, James, and John to come a little further into the garden where they might pray with him. And it says that as they went, Peter, James, and John with Jesus, that Jesus became distressed, that Jesus became agonized. We're told that this is the point where he began to sweat drops of blood from his brow, knowing what was before him physically and spiritually, that in a moment he would experience the most horrible death mankind has ever imagined, the scourging and then the cross. But beyond that, that he would have placed upon him the sins of the world. As Isaiah chapter 53 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray, but the iniquity of us all has been placed upon him. And so in a few moments, Christ would experience the physical and the spiritual reality of the cross. And Peter, James, and John got to witness the agony and the distress and the battle in prayer in his humanity that he had in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we know, thankfully, that the Lord said that night, Nevertheless, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he went to the cross for the joy set before him. And the joy of the cross was you. The joy of the cross was that your sin might be removed, that my sin might be removed, that we would be for eternity in heaven with our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. God is so madly in love with you that he considered it a joy to give his only begotten son, that he considered it a joy that his son would die upon the cross simply that we might live brand new, sinless, forgiven, and free lives. How good is our God? But Peter, James, and John got to witness as no one else in all of history the power of Christ Jesus and the deity of Christ Jesus and the distress of Christ Jesus. But the Lord has said to all of us in the Gospels, to whom much is given, much is required. And these men and the privileges afforded them were given much. But make no mistake, there was much required of Peter, much required of James, and much required of John. Imagine the demands upon the lives of these men as the church was birthed. We know that Peter was the preeminent and the primary apostle and the primary preacher during the birth of the church. It was he who delivered those first sermons after Pentecost when 3,000 were saved and then thousands more were added to the church. We know that by Acts chapter 4, the church numbered in Jerusalem some 5,000 men. It would stand to reason that there were, that was just counting the men, there were at least 10,000 new believers in Jerusalem. And Peter was the chief pastor in charge there. Can you imagine trying to organize a new believer program for 10,000 converts? Immense pressure upon Peter after the ascension and Pentecost. We know that the church had an amazing burden upon them of caring for the widows and the orphans. They carried on that ministry of Christ Jesus of loving and providing for the needy. And Peter took a leadership role in this in appointing deacons and servants to follow through with that. We know that in Acts chapter 9, there was a young girl who was dead and her name was Tabitha, or in Greek, Dorcas. You never want to name anybody Dorcas. But Dorcas died 
And Peter was called upon to raise her from the dead. Now, how's that for pressure? I don't know if I want you to call me on that day. They called Peter. Hey, Pastor Pete, my daughter's dead. Yeah, Dorcas, come and do something about it. Peter walked in that room in Acts chapter 9, closed the door behind him, emptied the room, and did the only thing that he knew how to do. Like Jesus did before him. He took her by the hand and said, little girl, get up. And she got up and was raised from the dead. Peter experienced amazing things with Jesus and attempted great things for Jesus, but it would come at a radical cost. We know from the life of Peter that he was persecuted, that he was flogged, that he was imprisoned, and that he was threatened. All these guys left everything to follow Jesus, but they sacrificed all to serve Jesus. There's a difference. There's a difference between just following and really laying down your life to serve him. Eventually, Peter was martyred. He was killed for his faith, and in typical Peter-like fashion, they told him, hey man, we're going to kill you because you're a believer in Christ Jesus. And he said, well, if you're going to crucify me, you're going to crucify me upside down because I'm not worthy to die in the same way my Lord did. And so church tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down on a cross for his faith. But I want you to think about the life of Peter, and I want you to realize this, that when Peter died and he stepped into eternity, when he went through the gates of heaven, And he saw Jesus. He saw someone he knew. It was a reunited moment. They were brought together. It wasn't a stranger. It wasn't someone he had heard about at church. It wasn't just... It was someone he knew and walked with and loved. And saints, I want to confess to you this morning that that is my goal in this lifetime, that I would so know Jesus, I would so love Jesus, I would so draw near to him that when I die and walk through the gates of heaven, I'm going to recognize him. It's going to be a reuniting moment, seeing my Lord and friend face to face as Peter did. Peter, in laying down his life, could say like Paul in Philippians chapter 3, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Peter knew what it was to be intimate with Jesus. He knew what it was to give everything up for Jesus. And some of you, are being called to the same life. You may not be called to leave the family business. You may not be called to just leave your life situation and your work and wherever you're at. But each one of us, as we endeavor to be disciples now, a community of disciples, we're called to give up self. doesn't mean necessarily that we have to give up all of our dreams or even all of our ambitions. But it means, like Jesus, we say, not my will be done, but your will be done. As Peter abandoned his will, and his life was amazing, but it came at a great cost. To whom much is given, much is required. Now what about James, who we're talking about today? James, it's believed and it can be deducted that in the early church, at a time there, he rose to prominence even over Peter in leadership, or at least in popularity. What makes me say that? In Acts chapter 12, Herod the king wanted to deliver a blow of persecution to the church. The church was growing too much, becoming too influential, and he wanted to deliver a blow. And so, he killed James. Herod had James beheaded with a sword. And we're told there in Acts chapter 12 about verse 2 that he saw that it pleased the Jews and so then he had Peter arrested. But we see that when he wanted to deliver a blow to the church, it was James whom he won after, possibly rising to prominence or great popularity and secondarily he won after Peter. But it was James who lost lost his life. After the ascension of Christ Jesus, James was allowed to serve the Lord faithfully for 14 years. And then came that moment in Acts chapter 12. And we're told by a historian that when James was being led to his execution, he was so brave. He was so full of faith 
that one of his captors fell down on his knees and asked him for forgiveness and confessed that he too was a Christian and said, James, it is not right for you to die alone. And at that point, both of them were beheaded at the order of Herod. To whom much is given, much is required. John, on the other hand, was not martyred. He's the only apostle that didn't die for his faith of violent death. John lived a long life, some 70 years of ministry after the day of Pentecost. But during those seven years, he gave his life fully. He fully devoted all that he was to the work of the kingdom, to the establishment of the church. We believe that he established churches, churches in Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Thyatira, and Ephesus. And we are told by history that while in Ephesus, he was arrested and deported to Rome. And when he got to Rome, they planned to execute him. And we're told in church history or tradition that they put him in a boiling vat of oil. And it had no effect on him. He didn't die. That's what the early church fathers said happened to John. They put him in the oil and he didn't boil. Frustrated, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. Thought maybe we could quiet down this great apostle if he's on this remote outpost, this prison island of Patmos. But there John received from the Lord the revelation, the book of Revelation. And it is there where that amazing book was penned on the island of Patmos. And then returning to Ephesus sometime later, he finally died a happy old man. But he gave his life fully to the work of the Lord, to whom much is given, much is required. Each one of these inner three were intimate with the Lord, experienced much by walking with the Lord, and each one of them responded by giving the fullness of their lives to Jesus Christ. Now this is what we are talking about at this season in our church. Going, on, going beyond being merely believers, going beyond mere Christianity, Going beyond churchianity, going beyond going through the motions, going beyond religion, and truly and wholly and completely being sold out for Jesus Christ. Now, there is no question in my mind that it is the Lord's will for each one of us that we be in that place, that we be absolutely on fire all out for Him. It only depends upon us. The Lord will not force us but he beckons, he offers. And discipleship, as we talked about, comes with a cost. It's different for every disciple. Not every disciple is going to be a martyr. By the fact that you live here in America, there's not that great of a chance, at least right now, at this moment, that you will be a martyr, although some have. It doesn't mean that necessarily you've got to leave all that you know now and go to some far-off land, although some have. But I want to comfort you this morning and yet challenge you this morning to know that you can be a full-blown, sold-out disciple exactly where you're at right now. In your current relationships, in your current living situation, in your current job, you can go 100%. It doesn't have to be tomorrow. It doesn't have to be in a far-off land. It can be here and it can be now. But I want us to be reminded of the fact that discipleship comes with a cost as we turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We went there two weeks ago, but I want to see it again. Luke chapter 14, once again being reminded of what Jesus has had to say about discipleship or being a true disciple, starting in verse 25 of Luke 14. It says, Now great multitudes were going along with Jesus, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and he does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, Yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a radical thing. 
We talked about what that meant. It doesn't mean hate in the sense that we mean hate because Jesus commanded and God commands that we ought to honor our mother and father, that we are to love everyone. So it doesn't mean hate in that sense, but it means in very strong language this, that Jesus is to take priority in our lives over every other relationship. Pure and simple. My mama taught me that when I was very young. Jesus is to take priority over every other relationship. And our love for anyone else in the human realm should pale in comparison to our love for the Lord. And why wouldn't it? Look what he has done for us. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He made us who were deserving of hell. He gave us the promise of heaven through the forgiveness of sins. Why wouldn't we love him? It's very simple. He said, unless we love him like that, he cannot be my disciple. And then he said in verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And we talked about at length what that means. The giving up of self, the reckoning, our lives is no longer belonging to us, but belonging to him that we've been bought with a price. And then he says regarding these things, in verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. What Jesus was saying here to the multitudes who were following him was, this is what it means to be my disciple. You've got to place me upon the throne of your life. I've got to be number one. And he deserves every bit of it. It's not a weird request. I've got to be number one. And you have got to decrease as I increase. You have got to pick up your cross, lay down your life. And then he says there, count the cost. It's not easy. He makes no excuses for it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't hide it. And we won't either. True discipleship is not a simple thing. It's costly. It's laying down our lives. But I want you to see now the flip side of that coin as we turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we'll see the flip side of the coin of discipleship. Mark chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 28. Peter began to say to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. A true statement. He lays it out like it is. He says, Lord, I'm a disciple. Look, I have left everything to follow you. Possibly at this moment, just sort of wondering, what, 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 Quite frankly, what's in it for me? Lord, I've left everything. Now, I don't think that's a wonderful question. I think to be theologically right, we should follow the Lord and never say what's in it for me. But let's be honest here, we're humans. And we so often, as Peter did, say what's in it for me? Lord, we've left everything to follow you. And look what Jesus says in verse 29. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he shall receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I love the Lord. He's absolutely honest. He says, Peter, nobody has left anything for me that will not be rewarded a hundred times. Now, there's a segment of the church that abuses and misunderstands the scripture, and they think if they give one dollar to the Lord that they're going to receive a hundred back. That's not what he was teaching. He said their houses and mothers and brothers and sisters. You want a hundred sisters? I don't want a hundred sisters. I love my one very much and my two others. But he is talking about satisfaction. 
the Lord will reward those who follow him with sure satisfaction. Yes, there is a cost. But the reward far outweighs the cost. Yes, discipleship is a call for your life. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? And then the Lord is honest. He says, but it will come with persecutions. Don't be surprised when they hate you. They hated me, he says. And in the age to come, eternal life. This life is that, and eternal life is from here to Santa Barbara. This life is that, and eternal life is giant. Anything that we experience in this life is nothing. Paul said it this way, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that I shall see. And what about Paul? Oh, just hold on for one minute. I'm just going to read it to you. I don't want you to go there. I'm going to read something to you from Corinthians and the life of Paul. Gee whiz. Listen, here's Paul describing his ministry toward the end of it. He says, speaking of someone else, are they servants of Christ? I more so. I've been in far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and in exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And yet, he says, I do not consider these present sufferings worthy to be compared with the glory that I shall receive when I enter into reward in the heavenly realm and I hear my Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know that any of us have experienced what Paul experienced. And so can't we say, I don't consider this life anything compared to the glory of eternal life. Amen, hooray, hurrah. We need to remember, as we talk about laying down our lives as disciples, that God, by His very nature, is not a taker. He's a giver. And He always rewards those who give to Him. You can't outgive God. You can't out-sacrifice God. For God so loved the world, He gave. God has demonstrated His love in that while we're yet sinners, He gave His Son, Christ Jesus, to die on our behalf. God is not a taker. He's a giver. So here's this challenge. You try to outgive God. You try to give more of your life than you think God can give back. And I think you'll be shocked to find out that God is a rewarder of those who seek Him. James and John had a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. We remember that Peter received the nickname, The Rock, or Rock. And we talked about what that meant in relation to his personality when the Lord gave it to him. He was that impetuous, vacillating, wish-washy, flaky guy, anything but a rock. And so when the Lord called him a rock, it was that bit of encouragement. And it was him speaking prophetically of what he would make him to be. And it was really a nickname that was good. You know, like up the ante, it was a good name. But sons of thunder, I don't know if that was as positive as rock. He'd walk up to Peter and he'd say, right on, rock. And then he'd look at James and John and, oh, the sons of thunder. What is thunder like? Well, I don't know. Thunder is loud. Thunder can be frightening. Thunder can be disconcerting at times. Thunder, thunder, thunder. I don't know what thunder is like. Let's see what it looks like. Turn to Luke chapter 9. I'll show you some thunder. Luke chapter 9. We have here a glimpse into the personality of James and John. 
why they might be called the sons of thunder. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension that Jesus resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. Now normally, when a Jew was traveling between the Galilee and Jerusalem, you guys will experience this this summer when we go to Israel as a church sometime in August, Um, Jerusalem is south of the Galilee. And there is the Jordan River that runs from the Sea of Galilee down toward the direction of Jerusalem. And I'll face the same way you are, lest I get confused. Here's Jerusalem. Here's the Dead Sea. Here's the Galilee up here. And the Sea of Galilee here. And the River Jordan comes down just like my arm. And on the left of the River Jordan was that area called Samaria. Now the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. The Jews had been carried away in the captivity by the Assyrians and they had intermingled with some people in the region and they had mixed their race and the outcome was the Samaritans. And so Jews and Samaritans did not get along. They didn't like each other. And so when a Jew was traveling either from Galilee down to Jerusalem or from Jerusalem up to Galilee, he would not go through Samaria. He didn't like the Samarians. And so he would come to the other side of the Jordan and he would go up that side by Edumai up to the Galilee and totally avoid the Samaritans altogether. Jesus, in bringing his boys down to Jerusalem from the Galilee, sends them ahead into Samaria to prepare the way for him. Probably for these nice Jewish boys, it was the first time they had ever been in that region. Certainly they had hostilities and prejudices in their heart. As wrong as they were, it was a cultural reality of the time. And then it says in verse 53, Speaking to the Samaritans. And they did not receive Jesus because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans didn't like the Jews either. And they didn't like Jerusalem because in Jerusalem, of course, was the temple. And there was the worship of God. But the Samaritans established their own mount and their own temple to compete with Mount Zion in the temple there on the mount. And they would worship God from that mountain. We see this uh, mentioned in the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. And the Jews were always saying, that's not the real mountain. That's not the real place to worship God. You can't do that. And the Samaritans were saying, we don't like Jerusalem. We worship God here. And so Jesus sends them ahead, says, prepare a place for me. And they say, where are you going, Jerusalem? You Jews, we don't want you. We're not going to receive you. Happens to the best of them. But look at James and John. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Let me put it in modern language for you. Hey, Lord, how about if we kill them? Let's just kill them. These Samaritans, let's take them out. Hey, Lord, remember when Elijah called down fire on those who were opposing your work then? Oh, listen, let's call down fire and burn these Samaritans to a crisp. We can have Samaritan kebabs. We can have fried Samaritans. Lord, let's kill them. That was real. I mean, they actually said to Jesus, so do you want us to kill them now? I don't know. It's it's not effective evangelism, really. Hey, man, i got to tell you about the Lord. No, I don't want to hear it. I'm going to have to kill you then. (laughs) The sons of thunder. That's why they were called the sons of thunder. These guys had attitude. These guys were gnarly. For them, it was black and white. You're not receiving Jesus. We're going to kill you. Verse 55. But Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know of what kind of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Amen. And so Jesus said, "Um, James, John, mellow out, dudes. I'm not here to kill people. I'm here to save people. But we see there a highlight, or being made obvious, their personalities, their attitudes, and why they were called the Sons of Thunder. 
commenting on this event, an author named A.B. Bruce, who was writing in 1871. He wrote a book called The Training of the Twelve. It's absolutely phenomenal for those who wish to be disciples and leaders in the kingdom of God. A.B. Bruce wrote this. To some, it may seem a matter of wonder how a man capable of entertaining so revolting a purpose as is here ascribed to James and John could ever be the disciples whom Jesus loved. To understand this, it must be remembered that Jesus, unlike most men, could love a disciple, listen, could love a disciple not merely for what he was, but for what he should become. He could regard with complacency even our sour grapes in their season for the sake of the goodly fruit into which they should ripen. Aren't you glad? The Lord looks at you and he is absolutely crazy about you. He loves you. But make no mistake about it, he sees that you are jacked up. That you have got some personality flaws, some character traits that aren't so happening, son of thunder. But he also sees the finished product. Don't you love that? He sees the finished product. And then because we are now as born-again Christians in Christ Jesus, he sees us as perfect and righteous, even as Jesus is. But in dealing with James and John, just as, just as Jesus dealt with Peter, he didn't destroy their personality. He didn't crush it. He just directed it. He shaped it and he molded it. Like Peter, you know, Peter had the big mouth. He was the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. But after Jesus was done with him, and after he received the Holy Spirit who came upon him that he might be a witness, he was the apostle with the golden tongue. He preached. He was the primary preacher. God made a radical transformation in him. He didn't destroy his go-for-it attitude or his big mouth. He redeemed it to use it for his glory. That's what God does. God doesn't want to destroy you. He made you. Even with your funkiness, God made you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He knows your personality. He doesn't want to destroy it. He wants to refine it. He doesn't want to abolish it. He wants to direct it. He wants to harness it and make it valuable and usable for his kingdom. It's like a big, wild, giant horse with fire in his eyes and smoke coming out of his nose. The man who goes to break that horse, he doesn't destroy the horse and take from him his power. He just harnesses the power. And then the power and the attitude and the grunt and all of that is usable in the hands of the master. You are to be usable in the hands of the master with your wonderful, beautiful, glorious, exciting, funny, funky personality. God wants to shape you and mold you and direct you and use you. But we see here, exhibited in this moment with James and John, a real picture of immaturity. That I would say I myself have experienced as a Christian and maybe many of you have as well. There often comes a time in our Christian walk where we've been born again, we're in fellowship, we've seen the Lord make some changes in our lives, we've made some changes, there's some stuff that we're not doing anymore, and there's some stuff that we're doing, and we begin to study the Word, and we learn a few things, and we're beginning to grow, and all of a sudden, like teenagers, we think we know more than everybody else. It seems to me to be a part of the spiritual growth for so many. It was for me for sure. There came a time where I just simply thought I knew better than everybody else at the church, including the pastor. I knew better how church ought to be done. I knew better how the word ought to be taught. I had a better understanding of it. I was more holy than everybody else. I was more zealous than everybody else. I was more right on than everybody else. My sin looked way better on me than it looked on them. I had it going on and they didn't. Pride comes before the fall. It's being a spiritual teenager. Anybody have teenagers? Anybody ever been a teenager? Remember when you thought you knew everything? Then you got a little older? What did you realize? What did you realize? You know nothing. The more you know, the less you know. 
I used to think my parents were so dumb. Sorry, Mom. I was a teenager. These, why don't they get there? So out of touch. I'm totally sure it's not the 60s anymore. And now that I'm just out of my teens, I realize that I know nothing. And they know far more than me. You see, there was displayed here in James and John a level of spiritual immaturity. They had zeal and the zeal was good. They were bummed out when the Samaritans rejected Jesus Christ. But they responded in harshness and meanness and arrogance. And the Lord had to tell them, I'm not here to destroy the lives of men and women. I am here to save the lives of men and women. And so as God began to work in them and mature them, we see that grace began to develop, that a humility began to develop. And as God does that in us, we grow out of that phase and we become tempered or balanced. And it happens as God continually begins to expose more and more of our sin. You see, God is graceful. And when we first start to follow him and we're zealous for him and his kingdom, he is only exposed to us a little bit of our sin. You know, maybe you've got this habit or this and that and the other. And you quit drinking or doing whatever and you're thinking, huh, I've arrived. I'm the full-on, radical, gnarly, perfect Christian. I got it all together. I don't do that. Great. And then the Lord goes, okay, now here's the time. And he exposes a little more sin. You go, oh, wow, I didn't know I did that. And then you deal with that. You let him deal with that. He purges that out of you. And then he shows you a little more. And then a little more. And then all this external stuff is stripped away. And now he begins to deal with the heart. It's like peeling an artichoke, leaf by leaf. And all these little thorns coming off. And then he gets to the heart. And what's over the heart? The part that choked Artie. (laughs) All that little stuff. You see, the thorns on the outside of the artichoke, they were nothing. The thorns on the outside of the artichoke, they're nothing. They're just easy. They just came out easy and just you threw nothing. But when the heart was exposed, oh man, this is a mess. There's a whole lot of thorns here. There's a whole lot of stuff going on. You see, the heart is desperately wicked and full of deceit. I used to have a house, my wife and I, before the house that we live in now, and I had an office It was upstairs where I would study and prepare to preach and stuff. And I would always get up before dawn and I'd be looking out this window And this window from the second floor, it faced the east. And as it faced to the east, there was a mountain range there. And uh, I would sit there and stare out that window. And I remember one morning, the sun was not yet up, and I was looking through this window. And I had remembered this window being, you know, pretty filthy, second story, who cleans them, right? But the sun was just barely starting. There was like just a little glow. And the window was just crystal clear, just perfectly clean. I didn't see any dirt on it whatsoever. And I watched the sun come up and it was just the clearest window you'd ever seen. And I was just blessing my wife and my mind going, man, she climbed up there and cleaned the window. How'd she get her little arm out? How did she do that? I was so excited the window was clean. And then the sun began to come up a little bit more. And I saw a few spots and a few dirt marks. And then as the sun began to come above the mountains, all of a sudden, there was all this dirt on the window. And then as the sun peeked over the mountains and the full light of the sun shone on the window, I was blinded by the reflection of the light coming through all the filth that was on the window. You see, when I was sitting in darkness, everything seemed clean. When it was exposed to the light of the sun... There was the filth made evident. And so as we press into Jesus Christ, the Son, the S-O-N, our filth is made evident, not that we might be condemned, but that we might find room in our hearts to repent and be cleansed. And so it is immaturity that thinks we're great. Maturity says, wow, I stink. A.B. Bruce says it like this again in his book. In the green, crude stage of the divine life, whose characteristics are, listen, opinionativeness, censoriousness, scrupulosity, intolerance, blind, passionate zeal, 
John would play the part of a mimic of Elijah in his spiritual maturity after the summer sun of Pentecost had wrought its effects in his soul and sweetened all its acid juices, he became an ardent apostle of salvation and exhibited in his character the soft, luscious fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. God took this son of thunder and by loving on him and by him walking with the Lord, transformed him into who is known through all of church history as the disciple of love. John is called the disciple or the apostle of love. He went on to write the book of 1 John. 1 John is where we are told God is love. He went on to write 2 John and 3 John and the book of Revelation and the gospel of John. What a stud. But he is the apostle of love. In 1 John, he speaks of what? Over and over again. Read it sometime. It's love, 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 love. But it is also very black and white. It's very cut and dry. He says, if anybody claims to love the Lord and yet hates his brother, he's a liar. Black and white. John would lay it out just like he used to lay it out. But now it's about love. He says, you call yourself a Christian, you've got hate in your heart and towards someone, you're a liar, you're not a Christian. Wow. He still had that black and white gnarly attitude, but it's been refined now and used for the purpose of God. In his gospel, the gospel of John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that wasn't arrogant If you really begin to study the Gospel of John, thinking about the authorship thereof, you begin to realize that it was real humility that John never really mentioned himself by name. He simply said, in referring to himself, that it was the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is how the change came. From that brash son of thunder to the apostle of love, it came through him just receiving the love of Jesus Christ. We are told about John that at the Last Supper, he was reclining upon the chest of Jesus. There was Jesus reclining at the table as they did in the first century, and John just had his head right here in his chest, just loving on him and receiving his love. He must have developed an immensely sweet spirit Because at the cross, before Jesus died, Jesus looked at his mother Mary. And he said, Mary, behold your son, John. And he said to John, John, behold your mother. And we're told from that day forward, the disciple took her into his home and loved her. How sweet must his spirit have been that Jesus entrusted his earthly mother to him from a son of thunder to the sweetest man. I'm reminded of Pastor G. Pastor G. Next time you have a one-on-one conversation with Pastor G, ask him to give you his mean look. Ask, Ask him to give you his mean look. He is the most terrifying, big, bald, strong man you have ever seen in your life. But those of you that just know him recently, you know that he is the sweetest kindest, gentlest, most loving, humble man you have ever met. I would entrust Pastor G with my mother if I were going to die. He is that sweet and wonderful. But in his old life, Pastor G was hardcore. (laughs) Pastor G doesn't look how Pastor G looks because he was a teddy bear all the time. He was a big, nasty, mean, violent man. But look what the Lord does. Praise the Lord. Some of you are big and mean and nasty and violent. (laughs) The transformation was so complete in John that we're told in the book of Acts in chapter 8 that John was going about all the villages of Samaria preaching the gospel of salvation. Do you know what that means? A few years prior, he had stood in Samaria and said, these half-breeds, Let's kill them all. These Samaritans, let, let's, let's burn them. Fire, kill them. And now, after having been transformed from the son of thunder 
to the apostle of love, he goes to those very same villages and talks about Jesus, whom years earlier they have rejected and says, I was wrong. We didn't come to destroy. He came to save. What a transformation. And that is the hope of us in this community and on this coastline. If you're like me, you've done some really ugly things in your past life, but God wants to redeem it. And he wants to send you to those same people that you have offended in your flesh to preach the gospel and the good news in the spirit. That's a wonderful and amazing thing. We're going to do part two next week because I feel like ending right here. Father, I ask that you would cause us to meditate upon this truth. The transformation that you did in Peter, the transformation that you worked in James and in John, how they left everything and followed you and how they sacrificed their lives in serving you. But it was all simply the outflow of you being with them and them with you. Lord God Almighty, stir up in the heart of this congregation and the people of this coastline a hunger to be with you. Show us the reality of the kingdom of God that we might forsake the kingdom of man. Let us be as John who reclined upon your chest, whose head was resting in your bosom. Let us be as Peter, who had such a big mouth and made so many mistakes, and yet you used him to preach the gospel to thousands. Let us be as James, who even if following you would take us to death, we would consider it all joy. Do a deep work in our hearts of making us disciples. We ask it in Jesus' name.